question that the Lord proposes to us is, uh, is this. Is Jesus calling us to an event in our life that is sporadic and only happens a few times in our life? Is He calling us to do things every now and then? Is that what He's calling us to do? Is Jesus calling us to a lifestyle? Is He calling us to a lifestyle where others are first in our life? Let's face it. The concern of each person for himself or herself is so well ingrained in all of us that it's human nature that that almost no one can censor. But the text that we have before us is the Christian refuting of that, of this very principle that we live for ourselves. In fact, when I read something like in, uh, now I'll read it in another translation, but if I read it in the Amplified Bible, what it actually says here is very good. It says, it says that do nothing from factional motives through contentiousness, strife, selfishness, or unworthy ends, or prompted by conceit and empty arrogance. Instead, it is the true spirit of humility, lowliness in mind, and superior to himself, thinking more highly of one another than you think of yourself. And verse 4 says, Let each one of you esteem and look upon and be concerned for not only merely his own interests, but also for each for his own interests of others. And Eugene Peterson, in his, his the paraphrase version, says this. He says, and, and I'm going to read this also, uh, 1 Peter 4. He says, If you have gotten anything out of, out of, out of following Christ, if His love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other, love each other, be deep spiritual friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget long yourself. Uh, forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand unto others. Now think about what James has told us, and he tells us there's two reasons that our prayers are not answered. Our prayers are not answered one because we just don't ask; we say we just don't want to have prayers. But there's another reason our prayers are not answered. That it tells us in James that that we that when we ask, we ask. But the Bible says it's ask amiss. And what it means to ask amiss, we're asking for something that our motives are not pure. And he asks us to think about it, and he tells us that he says as a result of that, we're not those prayers are not going to be answered because what we're really wanting, we're wanting to consume it on our own lust. And I wonder sometimes, even in our prayers and prayer requests and other things, what's our motive in those when somebody asks us to pray for them, do we really, is our motive as pure like it ought to be that we're really praying for them? Or is sometimes, is there things behind things that just takes away from what, and God knows, knows our heart. You know, the Bible says He knows what we have need of even before we ask. So He knows when you get ready to ask, He knows why, you, why you're really asking for something. I once heard a story of a lady that was always telling everybody to pray for her son. And that would be a good thing. And he wasn't saved. And and the truth of the matter is, he wasn't saved. You say, well, that would be good to pray for somebody not saved. But the real motivation behind it was it was not her motivation for him to come to Christ to be saved. Her motivation behind it was she was ashamed of him. She felt like her daughter had bared meat to him. So she was ashamed of him. So it tells us this, it says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but let it be done in lowliness of mind. Let each one esteem others better than themselves. Look not only for their own interests, but also look for the interests of others. I see people sometimes, you know, I've had people come to me and they have a new shirt on or a new shoes or something like that. And they say, what do you think of the new shirt? And the truth of the matter is, I don't want to lie to them, but it could be one of the most ugly things I've ever seen in my life. But what am I going to do? Am I going to? Am I just going to spoil everything for them and look at them and say? And I, I'm just 
want to knit kids together. I think people sometimes want to go around and kick the tires of what somebody else thought rather than realize what you're doing. You don't have to. You know, our opinions are like noses. Everybody's got them. So let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Be done in lowness of mind. Let each one esteem others better than themselves. Look not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. This says the one who has believed in Christ is first to look out for somebody else. Well, think about that. What he's saying. He's saying that when I came to Jesus, everything changed. That no longer am I as to look just for my own interest, but I'm to look out for the interest of other people. And in the first chapter of Philippians, Paul had been teaching to the Christians of Philippi about proper Christian conduct. Our motive should and always will be to please the Lord. Well, listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 20, verse 20, 21. It says this. It says simply, Now may the God of peace who brought up our who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, verse 21 says, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, who is Lord forever. Amen. You see, many times the Lord wants me to do something that I don't want to do. And that's the thing that what happens over in the book of Galatians when it tells us that one of the fruits of the Spirit, and he's talking about the fruits of the Spirit, and he's talking about the battle that we have inside of us, that it really says where that you where that you cannot do the things that you want to do. Well, what does that mean? There's times that I, my flesh rises up and I want to do things that really the Lord doesn't want me to do. And so He comes to me and He says to me, I don't want you to do it. And why didn't He want to do it? Because it would not be pleasing in His sight. How many things do we do that are not pleasing in His sight? And He goes on to say, through Jesus Christ, that He be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then it says over in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5, Verse 9, listen to what this says. Therefore, we make it our aim. So, so what's the goal of living the Christian life? We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. Are you, I hate to ask this question. Are you pleasing the Lord Jesus? Or what you're about, what you're doing with your time, with your money, with, your, with everything else in your life, are you pleasing Him? How many times do I hear Christian people say, well, when somebody hurts them or does mean things to them, and, and listen, I'm not diminishing what people do. I hate it. And sometimes I'll see people come in here and somebody will walk up to them, and maybe that person has been through an unbelievable circumstance or situation, and that, and, and that they don't, the person that's coming up to them, they don't know what this person has been through. And they will go up and say things, and this person, you can just see all the blood that's drained out of them, because they're, they're, they're saying something and trying, and really the truth of the matter is what they're really doing is just being nosy. You know, some people can sit in the, sit in the limpers living room and lick the place in the kitchen. You know? You want to talk about, you want to talk about spiritual control? You want to talk about the fruits of the Spirit? One of the main things about the fruits of the Spirit is being able to control your tongue. Not to say things, to be degrading to people. Not to put people down, but we're continually to be uplifting to people. And how many times they have, And so I don't diminish them. And there's some of you that have been through things in your childhood or, or because you had a, a father or a mother that was unbelievable. And, and I don't diminish that in any capacity, what you went through with that. So I'm never, I don't, I, I'm never saying, oh, well, that's just nothing. No, I would never do that to you. Never say that to you. But what I want you to be able to do is be relieved from all that. That's my motive. My motive is not to say, oh, you went through this and you went through this, whatever. Well, it's nothing. Just get over it. I would never do that to anybody. I don't care who it comes from. But what I want you to do is to be relieved. You see, the very motive, I had a young couple with me and I had to do a viral thing because they're, they're out, of, out, of, out of state and everything. And so I'm marrying them. November, and I was, you know, and, and so the other night as we were talking, we were talking about forgiveness. And in the 17th chapter of the book of Luke, Jesus says, if a man comes to you and he sins against you seven times, that you're to forgive him. And I, I love the disciples because 
while they sometimes ask some crazy questions, yet by the same time, read the questions that I would ask. And so they look at Jesus and they say to him, Lord, if you want us to forgive somebody like that, then you're going to have to, you're going to have to increase our faith. You want us to forgive somebody seven times in a day? Somebody comes in one day and says, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. You say, well, he's not sincere. He didn't say anything about what somebody else is sincere. He just said that if they come to me and ask us for forgiveness, we're to forgive them. But he goes on to say simply, he says, uh, he goes on to say that he tells a story about a man who has these guys working out in the field and, and they're working in the field and they come in, they're hot, they're sweaty, and they've been working a bunch, bunch of their hand to do all the things they do. And he says, he was saying to them, does, does the master of the house tell them, now boys, y'all been out there working really hard, y'all sit down, let me teach you. He said he doesn't do that, but what does he do? He looks at them and he, he still expects them to sit down and feed him just like you would. Why? Because it's their responsibility. What does Jesus say? He's saying that forgiveness has nothing whatsoever to do with feeling. It has nothing whatsoever to do with, with anything else but simply obedience. Jesus has forgiven you, so you don't have a choice but to forgive other people. But here's the reason I want you to forgive. I want you to forgive to release them. is that veil over our face that keeps us from doing everything that the Lord wants us to do. And we've got to release it. We've got to let it go. And that person's out partying hard. He's, you know, enjoying life, whatever. They kick that key, and here you are thinking about it all the time. And so what I'm simply saying to you is forgiveness has to do with releasing things. But he, he goes, but I hear people, but you know, that simply Christians see other Christians, when, when you get hurt or just does mean things to you, but the reaction many times is one of retribution. Because it totally breaks fellowship with that person. It's simply to say, well, I, you know, I, I'll forgive them, but I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Does it hurt? Oh, yeah, it hurts. Retribution, I don't do many such anyway. But I wonder, have you asked your Father in Heaven, does my action of getting even with them, does that please you? It doesn't. You see, when we talk about a warfare, we can go over to the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, verse 9, and we can talk about how we wrestle against, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But I want to tell you something. There is a warfare that's going on inside each one of us that's even maybe even more greater than that. And it's what does God want me to do in my life? What does He want me to say? What does He not want me to say? And so, does my action getting even, does it please God? And, and would you consider this selfless behavior or would you consider this selfish behavior? Well, I just I, well, I just tell it like it is. I guess you could say that. Once again, you're telling it like it is. Does it please the Lord that you got your that you got your point across? Because what does it say that we do? We do everything to what to please the Lord. That in everything I do, I'm doing one thing, and what is that? We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. Well, I just tell it like it is. Well, you tell it like it is, but the Lord has told me not to do a thing like that. And the Apostle Paul had told them they were citizens of heaven, that they should be united in an aggressive proclamation of the gospel. See, we're trying to win souls. We cannot win souls when we're fighting against people. We cannot win souls whenever when the, the, the windows of the church are wide open. And don't tell me, boy, that people are not looking inside the church. When I hear churches that are going through unbelievable stuff, and I hear churches that the, that the pastor's leaving or this kind of thing, and they've got this fight and they got that fight going on, well, what does that say? It's humanism. But there are things that we're wanting to do with the Lord. And so Paul now begins to apply those themes to the conduct of individual believers. Paul does not leave the question of a worthy life, which produces a steadfast faith. Until he brings it to rest on the worthy life as is found in the individual. A man is not self-seeking, a man not of self-seeking conceitedness, but a man with a humble estimate of himself seeking the welfare of others instead of him first. That's what the Lord wants. Steadfastness depends on unity, and unity depends on men. Christian principles would be the first thing I would say he's talking to us about. The unbeliever naturally puts himself first. 
of the second. Why? Because the Bible says that man, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit, but the Spirit receives the Son. Neither can he know them, for they're foolishness to him. The unbeliever, so he puts, him, he puts himself first. Another second, God last. You think you merit that way. But the Bible teaches we should reverse that way. The Lord is to be first in our life. Other second, and then we become last. For instance, listen to these verses, Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and I did 19 through 22. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant of the law that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews to those who are under the law. As under the law that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21. To those who are without the law as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law toward Christ that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak. Listen to this. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I became all things to all men that I might be all men save some. And I've realized that over in the book of James when it says a man that comes to you and he's all dressed up and here comes some guy and he's, his clothes are sort of shabby and other things and, and you, you know, and, you, and he's real poor or whatever and he comes in and you tell him, you go over and sit over here on the side of here. But here comes the rich man and you say to him, you know, he comes in and you say, okay, uh, now you have the first seat here. And what I've realized on that, that doesn't have anything to do with his religion. Because you see, the measure in the kingdom of heaven is who we are spiritually. In other words, here's a man that can have an. My dad had an eighth grade education. I was always proud of my dad. My, he could do math, he could do things in business, he was in business, and he was successful in business for over 40 years. But in that day, so a person could not be educated but have a PhD as far as Jesus is concerned in the spiritualness of God. And I've met those kind of people. I've met people that are not educated in the things of the world, but brother, when it came to this book, they knew this book back and forth. And that's what he's talking about. He's not just talking about wealthiness or materialism. He's talking about how we esteem one another. And though, and that's why you can look in the early church, and, he, and they had slavery. Slavery is not right. I understand that, but there's that culture that day. But here would be the master sitting with the slaves, and they were brothers in Christ. He overcame those things. He goes on to say in Romans 12, verse 10, to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Romans 15, 1 and 2, when we then who are strong ought to bear the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Leave each one of us please his neighbor as we're good, leading to edification. Now, I know those But this is the heart of the Christian concept. Jesus gave himself for others. And we're just saying as followers of Christ. If you got anything out of my message this morning, it's simply this, that the goal of this Christ God in you is for you to become like Jesus. So if I become like Jesus, then because Christ, because Christ uh, gave himself for others, then that's what I need to do. Instead of those who followed him in Matthew 25, and I'm not going to go there, 36 through 46, I'm not going to read all that. But this is where Jesus was talking about. He said, you know, I was hungry, and you fed me. And I, I, and I, I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a man, and you, you, uh, you sent me drink to drink. And I was, I was sick at home, and you came to me. And the, ama- and the amazing thing about that is Jesus talks about, when he talks about that, talks about their motives. Because those same people look at him and say, Lord, where do these where do these where do these species uh, where do these species, you know, hungry? Where do these species thirsty? Where do these where do where do these species get? And and it goes on and here's one of the things that boy we need to understand. See, the motive was not to be seen by men. Their motive was just to love of Jesus and kindly and just and want to help other people. I hope and pray that should be the motive of this church. And if it's not, we're going to fail. We're going to fall flat on our face. It's in the beginning. I wonder how many times when I had Richard come up here this morning, you know what that meant to Richard? You know, 
this church is we don't care how much money you have. We don't care how educated you are. We don't care anything. We don't care how far you slid, backslid, or, or whatever else you've done. If you come to Jesus, and you'll come and He'll forgive you. But that's who the people that we want in this church. And so Isaiah says, those who have no money, let them come and, and let them buy. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be about. And then Jesus added this in verse 40 of chapter 25 when He says this, And the king will answer and say unto them, I surely say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You didn't have to come by and buy. You didn't run away. And I'm going to say to you tonight, you know, the Bible talks to us about laying up our, our treasures in heaven for moth and rust can't get to us. And, and he also tells us, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Well, I'm going to tell you, I found out that, you know, that there's been many people in the church that were all kinds of Christian other people, and you would not know it. You would know it. But you see, when you do it that way, the Lord writes it down. And it says that when you when you do that, that and He will openly He will openly give to you in in heaven. You know, when you do that, but people that do those kind of things all the time. What I want to say is, even in Christmas, but because when you're doing that for somebody, why are you doing it? You're doing it unto Jesus. That's like a wife. The Bible says, you know, a lot of women don't like this, but the Bible says, wives submit yourselves to your own husbands. But what they don't hear, they don't hear the next part. The next part says, what? As unto the Lord. You're not doing it to Him because He's so wonderful and that, you know, and He ought to bow down to Him. But the whole point of what I'm saying is you're doing it. Why? Because you're doing it to Christ. That's why you're doing it. You're doing it unto Jesus. So, and then, and then I, I come to this, is that I need to, and I'm looking at these things, these verses, and I'm thinking about, I'm saying, and then I look at the fall of Satan. And caring for one another is the heart of the right relationship to God. And all rebellion against God is inevitably linked to a corresponding disregard for others. You know, in order to have the vertical relationship with God, I have to have the horizontal relationship with other people. He won't have, you know, and, and he asks the question over in First John. He says to us this, he says, How can you say you love God whom you have not seen when you hate your brother whom you've seen? What does that mean? So the story of Lucifer in Ezekiel 28 in Ephesians 6, 12, in Ephesians 6, 12, he tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of the spiritual places of wickedness places. So what was the real sin of Satan? And here it is. If you read Isaiah 14, I will, I will, I will ascend to heaven. It was, it was to be independent of God. That's what it was. And Ezekiel 28, verse 15 and 17 it says, you were perfect in your way, talking about Lucifer, in your day you were created till iniquity was found in you. God did not create evil. He didn't create Satan to be evil, but he became evil. By the abundance of your trading, listen to that, by the, verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. You have sinned, therefore I cast you into profane things out of the mountains of God, and I have destroyed you over covering cherubim from the midst of the fiery stones. Verse 17, your heart is lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. And one of these days they'll step up and here. And they're going to look at them and they're going to say, Man, that's a bad guy. That's the devil. They're going to think Lucifer. So, but notice this. He says, By the abundance of your trading. Well, what does that mean? The word trade here, it does not here necessarily mean, it doesn't necessarily mean he's talking about materialism. Apparently, Satan passed the commandments or orders of God down to the lower angels. In other words, he had, a, he had an elevated decision. He was made like no other angel was ever made. He had sights on him that he could see. He was worth whatever. But his job in heaven was to pass the commandments that God had given to him to pass down to the lower angels the orders to preach, create of the same time passed by the works of the creation back to God. And if you'll remember, remember the story of Jacob.
had a dream and he had a ladder and he thought his angels ascended and descended. And then we get over in the book of, in the New Testament and, get, and Jesus talks about how that he has become that ladder that now the angels are descending upon him. Remember that? Well, what was that? That was angels coming down from heaven. They were going up to heaven to take your prayer request and they were coming down when the answer, to bring the answer. And so here, here it is, is all this. And so Satan had a, had a responsibility of, of taking those orders and giving it to the lower angels and then taking them back to God. But at the same time, listen to this, he passed the worship of the creation back to God. So God was waiting for the credit, the worship. And, and let me just say this. You know, the Bible says, says this. It says that we have this treasure in our possession. Well, what's a treasure in our possession? Well, that's the Holy Spirit living inside us. You have this treasure in our possession, and then the Bible goes on to say that that the that the power may be of God and not of you. What's that you saying? God's not going to share His glory with anybody. He's not going to share the credit. Whatever you do, if you help somebody, whatever, it's not. Look what I've done. No, if you give, you've done it into Him. You want credit for it. Now He also goes on to say we get credit for it because already we're you know if you're faithful over a few things, I'll make you rule over many. But if you get to it openly, where that's why He says don't do your alms before men and this kind of thing. He says okay, that's your credit. Well, what's your credit you get? You wanted to be seen of men. But if we do it so Satan was to pass it down and then take the worship back to God. But Satan mishandled the authority of God and did it. And in Isaiah chapter 12, 14, excuse me, 12, 14, he says, How are you fallen, O heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, who, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart. Now listen to what Satan says in his heart, verse 13. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And listen to this. I will be like the most high. John Gray Barnhouse, in his last book that he ever wrote, says, says here we get one chance to remember the book of Gary Gray, The Invisible War. He asked the question from all the possible names of God, and there are almost 400 different names of God in the Bible. Then why does Satan choose the most high? Why did he choose the most high? Why did he not say like the Creator, or why did he not aspire to be like God in the names of Savior, or Redeemer, or Comforter, or Eternal Word, or the Shepherd, the Great I Am, the Light, the Way, the Life, the Truth, or any other names by which we may know our God? Why didn't he pick out one of those? The answer may be found by pointing to the name of the Most High, where it first occurs in Scripture. Satan wanted to be like the Most High. What does that mean? Remember the story of Abraham? And when Lot went out, you know, Lot just pitched his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and the next thing you know, they got invaded, and Lot got captured, so Abraham had to get his men together and go get him. And when he does, he's coming back after he defeated those kings, and he's coming back, and he meets a guy by the name of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a, a, a sort of a free thing of like Jesus, because he had no beginning and he had no end. Jesus had no beginning and he had no end. And so when he comes this way, and he, he comes back and he, he brings uh, bread and wine and he blessed Abraham. And listen to what it, Melchizedek says to Abraham. He said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be the, the God of Abraham, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. That's what Lucifer wanted to do. His rebellion was not a request for God to move over so that he might share God's throne. That wasn't it at all. No. It was a thrust of God himself. It was an attempt to put God uh, uh, you know, out so that Satan might take his place as possessor of heaven and earth. And we know from God's Word, as James said, one day Satan will defeat one-third of the angels that follow him. And we start to determine where he defeats because God doesn't want to be left for them. But it did bring misery to millions of people in Abraham, and it still continues today. A lot of the problems we got here, what's happening? You know, what's happening over in the Middle East? What's happening in our country right now? You don't think Satan's right behind all that stuff? And it brings us to the third thing. That brings us to a great alternative. In contrast, we 
rather than looking to ourselves, we look to Jesus. Instead of exalting himself, which Satan did, Jesus did, which he had every right to do, Jesus emptied himself of all outward aspects of his being and became a man for, for our salvation. You know, I believe there are two times in the Lord's life that he could have gone back to heaven. The first time he could have gone back to heaven when he was baptized. And after he was baptized, the Bible says in heaven told him that the a voice was heard from God the Father and said, The Spirit of God is coming out of the And it also says when you get to it, they came to But it also says this, it says that when he was baptized, the voice was heard from heaven and says this, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, God has always been well pleased with Jesus, so why was he pleased at this time with the Jews? I believe it's because when Jesus was baptized, he was committed to be the Savior of the If you go to the, the Mount of Transfiguration and you listen there to Jesus and there's Peter, James, and John and Along comes Moses and Elijah, and I talked to you a little bit about that this morning. How that Moses and Elijah uh, represented the Old Testament, how how Peter, uh, James, and John represented the uh, New Testament, and how Jesus was there with them. And I also believe that Moses was there because he represented the law. Elijah was there because he represented the prophets. But I also believe there's another reason they were there. Moses Moses was there because he died. He became my sin. 
everybody first with now where they are on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was going before them and they were amazed as they followed. They were afraid and then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him in verse 33. And the chief elders went up to Jerusalem and said among the Jews, Pray earnestly to the tribe and they should beat him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles and Gentiles. And they were mocking and scourging and stripping him and killing him the third day of Jesus. thing is the spiritual warfare. It should be evident from this that Paul admonishes the Philippians to consider others better than themselves. This, my friend, is the great war that is waging between light and darkness. We think of the battle for human souls, but there is another battle that is raging. It is the internal battle, and the point is not whether you will preach or witness, but whether you are becoming the kind of person who will love people and will give yourself for them in the sense that Jesus Christ gave himself for us, that we become like Jesus. And the only way I can do that is to get in his presence. Get in his presence until he just rubs off on me. Over and over again. God deals in quality, not quantitative. He wants people to do business in quality. Now, some may be thinking, well, I don't think I can. Of course you can. But the Lord can do it anyway if He heals you and then He puts it out working as a donation. Here's the fifth thing. How to live for others. How do you do that? If you are to live for others, then three things must happen. And by this I mean this. First, be honest. I think sometimes we have a hard time. I tell people all the time, one of the things that you've got to do is you've gone through stuff and it's uh, really hard for me. Acquire humility, the first step is to recognize you're proud. <laughs> he adds that it's the biggest, he uses the word biggest there, not B I G G I S, the biggest step to at least nothing can be done before that step. You've got to come to a place and say, Lord, I'm just full rotten. You know, and Paul says that over in Romans, Romans 7 within me, within my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. And then he goes on to say, How to perform, I find not. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of flesh? Yeah, he goes on. It, you know, and when was this? What, oh, oh, he was just this, just when he became a Christian. No, he wasn't this. He was walking, already walking with the Lord. But the, see, here's the thing: the closer you get to Jesus, the more sinful you are. The devil plays on that all the time. Well, if you were really a Christian, you would do this and do that. No, just go and give it to him. And here, first of all, the first step is you've got to be honest. Here's the second step. is to humble oneself before the Lord. Peter says this over in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. He says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to the elders. Yes, to all you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's see what he writes right here. Now, what was the problem that Peter had? Peter had all these like pride, always out front, always speaking up, always putting his foot in his mouth. You know, well, these other guys are going to lead the work, but that's not me, not the old rock. I'm going to hang right in when the cock crows and the guy tells you to come up and tell you what you're doing. And he says it just like this. Let's see what he writes here. Now, maybe you, you, you think, okay, I'm admitting to the Word. I, but you're saying, well, yeah, but I admit the Word to God all the time. You may, may ever write to expect that others should be humble because I'm such a wonderful Christian. 